As I said, uh, I'd like to look this morning at the question, uh, how do we know the Bible is true? And don't answer out loud, but I wonder, how would you answer uh, if someone came up to you and said, how do you know the Bible is true, if indeed you do? Uh, How do you know the Bible is true? And many Christians uh, would respond by pointing to uh, archaeological, historical, or even uh, scientific evidence for the reliability of the Bible. And that's good. That's good as far as it goes. There is archaeological evidence for the reliability of the Bible. I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of the Hittite Empire, Uh, but there was a time when, a century or two ago, where uh, historians mocked the Bible because it spoke of the Hittite Empire as a a mighty one, a great empire. Uh, But there was no evidence for it, or very little evidence for such an empire in the archaeology. Uh, That was until uh, a man, I think his name was Hugo Winkler, I think it was his name, uh, discovered the Hittite Empire in the sand. And the Bible was vindicated. Uh, So there is archaeological evidence. Uh, There's historical evidence as well. Um, There was an archbishop who lived some time ago called Archbishop Usher, and he wrote a much derided chronology of the Bible. Based on the information the Bible gives us, he wrote a chronology of history, and he, I'm going to forget the actual uh, battle now, but he uh, estimated the date of a particular battle. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, attack on some city or other. And he estimated the date within a year or two. But there was no evidence for such a date until uh, in fairly recent years uh, it was discovered that his date was right within, uh, as I say, a year or two. Uh, and he had got that date from biblical information, biblical data. And I could go on and on, uh, giving various archaeological and historical confirmation of what the Bible says. But uh, using that sort of evidence does pose a little bit of a problem, or at least raises a little bit of a problem. Because by using such evidence, it implies that unless we have that evidence, we can't know that the Bible is true. And the reality is, the majority of believers throughout history, and indeed across the world, don't have access to that information. Even us sitting here this morning may not have easy access to all the Uh, archaeological and historical information which would confirm the truth of the Bible. Uh, In other parts of the world, it's much worse, and in history, it just simply didn't exist. So what about them? Uh, How do they know the Bible is true? Uh, How can they be sure that what they are trusting in is the truth? Uh, There must be another way if people are to be confident, if we are to be confident in the truth of God's word. 
Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher, pastor in North America in the 18th century, uh, and also a missionary to uh, the uh, Husatunuk, I may have pronounced that wrong, the Husatunuk Indians in North America. Uh, he put it like this. He said, miserable is the condition of the Husatunuk Indians and others who have lately expressed a desire to be instructed in Christianity if they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity sufficient to compel them to sell all for Christ in other, any other way but through science and history. Slightly wordy way of putting it, but what he's saying is uh, they're in a sad state if these uh, Native Americans who have no access to the science and the history that perhaps others do, if that's the only way they can get a calm, sure, secure confidence in the Bible. And he said there must be another way. And I believe we are taught another way in this passage which we read uh, from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 7. What I'd like to do for the rest of our time this morning is look at this passage and see what we can learn about how we can know the Bible is true. And in this passage, we're introduced again to John the Baptist. Uh, He was mentioned earlier in the book, near the beginning, uh, but now John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, He's been arrested by King Herod, and in all likelihood, he is, um, if not depressed, he's down, his spirit is low, he's lonely, uh, separated from his friends and his disciples and his family. Uh, And in that prison cell, it seems he starts to doubt if Jesus really was who Jesus said he was. Now, you remember how uh, John the Baptist very boldly uh, baptized people in the River Jordan, and he saw Christ walking towards him, and he pointed at him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he saw uh, a dove descend from heaven at Christ's baptism and a voice from heaven say this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Um, but now he's not so sure Uh, in that dark dingy cell uh, possibly in fear of his life he's starting to wonder is it really true Uh, is Christ really the Messiah is he the one who is promised is he the coming one And so he sends a message to Jesus through his disciples, asking him this question. Now, the first thing to observe from that is that even the greatest of people can doubt. Even the greatest of people can doubt. Did you notice how Jesus described John the Baptist later in the passage? He said in verse 28... I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Of all the prophets, Jesus said John was the greatest. And yet, John is in the prison doubting. He's not sure. He's not sure that Jesus is who he said he was. Uh, There's a lot of stigma, isn't there, around doubt, especially in Uh, Christian circles uh, in the church. Uh, When someone's doubting, we feel like something's wrong. Uh, What's wrong with you? 
How can you doubt? Uh, you mustn't doubt. But doubt can be a sign of health. Uh, it's often the person who has never doubted who is also the person who's never learned to think. Uh, one way not to doubt is just simply never think about anything, never ever question anything. But that's not necessarily a healthy way to live. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says, The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. It's good to think. It's good to question to a certain degree. Otherwise, you just believe anything you are told. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. The simple believe every word, but the prudent considers well their steps. So there is a healthy sort of skepticism. There's an unhealthy sort of doubt, of course. The sort of doubt which doubts things that we shouldn't doubt. Doubts people we shouldn't doubt. Uh, There are people who we ought to trust, and if we don't trust them, something is wrong with us. But we should always examine to see our sources of information, to see if they are worthy of such trust. As John puts it in 1 John, test the spirits. Test the spirits. Examine whether they are true. And so John is doubting, he's questioning, and he sends a message to Jesus. He goes to the right place with his doubts, and he asks Jesus the question through messengers, are you really the one who is to come? That really is the key question for all of us. Uh, The key question isn't really, is the Bible true? That's important, but the reason it's important is, is because of this much more central question, is Jesus who he said he was? Because if he was, everything else falls into place. We can trust the Bible based on his testimony. But is he true? Is he real? And that's what John is wrestling with in this passage. So how does Jesus answer? Uh, What message does Jesus send back to John? Well, you can read it. In verse 22, Uh, God's word reads, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What Jesus does in response to John's doubts and questions, is he points to himself and he says, look at me. Look at what I am doing. Look at what I am saying. He's saying his own deeds and his own words are the authentication of who he is. He says, I could not do these things. I could not say these things unless I really was who I say I am. I could not say these things unless they were true. I could not do these things unless they were true. But you might object at this point, and you'll say, well, that might be all very well for John, but it doesn't help us much. 
Because we can't see Jesus. He's still in heaven. Uh, We aren't privileged to see the lame walking, the lepers cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the poor preached to by Christ in person. Uh, He isn't on earth now, so what good is that to us? But don't be too quick. Remember, John couldn't see it either. Where's John at the moment? He's in the prison. He's had to send messengers to Jesus, and even what Jesus is saying here, he's hearing back through messengers. John has to trust what these messengers are saying. John cannot see it with his own eyes in the prison cell. He simply has to believe or otherwise, the reports brought back to him. And isn't that exactly, almost, the same situation we're in? How do we know the things Jesus did and said? Well, we have to believe the testimony of those Jesus has sent to us. Their names are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, the authors of the New Testament are giving testimony of Christ, and they are telling us of what they have seen and heard. So really, we're not actually in too different a situation to what John was in, uh, except hopefully without the chains. We have to trust the witnesses and the messengers of Christ just like him. Our job is to decide whether we trust them or not. Uh, Do you remember Doubting Thomas? Uh, It's a bit unfair, really, that we call him that. Um, One uh, low point of his life, and we name him because of it. Uh, But Doubting Thomas didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, And we blame him for that. But the mere fact he didn't believe in a resurrection isn't... Um, worthy of criticism. I mean, we would all doubt it, wouldn't we? If someone said so-and-so rose from the dead, we would be sceptical, because that doesn't tend to happen. Uh, it's natural to be sceptical. What Thomas's problem was, however, wasn't simply that he found resurrection unbelievable. It was, first of all, he didn't trust what Jesus had told him, because Jesus had told him he would rise again from the dead. But secondly, he didn't trust his friends either. They told him, we've seen Christ. We've seen him. We've seen the wounds in his hands and in his side. He's alive. But Thomas said, I don't believe you. Until I see it for myself, I will not believe it. And he basically consigned his friends to being liars or mad because he didn't want to trust them. He only trusted his own eyes. Again, Thomas listened to the witness, but he didn't trust it. He didn't trust those he should have trusted. But you might say, but how can we know we can trust what Matthew says, or what Luke says, or what Mark says? Well, Jesus addresses that as well. Do you remember that verse I mentioned earlier, the very last verse we read? In verse 35... Um, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all her children. 
Wisdom is justified by all her children. You might ask, what does that mean? What does it mean, wisdom is justified by all her children? Wisdom doesn't have children. Wisdom is wisdom. It's, how does that work? Well, that expression is sort of, it, it's sort of similar to our expression, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Have you used that expression? Uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And what Jesus is saying, you can recognize wisdom from what it produces. You can know truth from its effects. Uh, There was once a priest in Belgium who rebuked a young woman and her brother for reading that bad book and pointing to the Bible. I'm not sure what sort of priest he was, but he rebuked this boy and girl uh, for reading the Bible. And he described it as a bad book. Uh, But the girl responded... And she said, um, I say boy and girl, they're young uh, youths, uh, teenagers or older. And the girl responded by, by saying this. She said, Mr. Priest, a little while ago, my brother was an idler, a gambler, a drunkard, and made such a noise in the house that no one could stay in it. Since he began to read the Bible, he works with industry goes no longer to the tavern, to the pub, uh, no longer touches cards, brings home money to his poor old mother, and our life at home is quiet and delightful. How comes, Mr. Priest, that a bad book produces such good fruits? That's an illustration of what Jesus is teaching here in verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. You can recognize wisdom by the fruit he produces. And that's really the message that John, uh, Jesus is sending back to John. He's saying, you can know who I am, just look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm saying. No one who is a liar, no one who is uh, of the devil, can say and do such things. I must be of the truth. Uh, if you want to tell if an orange tree is an orange tree, the best way to know is if it produces orange. It's, that's the way to tell because an orange tree is justified by its fruits. And that is what wisdom is like. But in a much deeper way, Jesus is pointing to himself. And he's saying, listen to me. Look at me. And if you are honest, if you honestly want to see the truth and know the truth, you will see who I am. Uh, He taught that explicitly in John's Gospel. He says, if anyone's will... If anyone wants to do the Father's will, who wants to do God's will, he will know if my testimony is of God. That was such a help to me when uh, I went through a period of doubting and questioning uh, the Bible. Uh, That one verse uh, helped me so much. Uh, Jesus said, if you truly want to know what God's will is, if you truly want to follow God and do what is right according to what he says, then you will know whether Jesus is true or not. Because Jesus gives the alternative, and he gives an example of some people who were not like that. Uh, He says, In verse 23, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. But look what it says uh, in verse 31. 
Uh, In verse 31, it says, The Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is saying there is, You're never going to be happy. Because you don't want evidence. You don't really want to know the truth. You don't really want to know God's will. You're just antagonistic to the message because you hate it. He says John the Baptist came um, sharing the good news. And they said, oh, he's mad. He's crazy. Uh, Eating locusts and wild honey and wandering around the wilderness. And they said he had a demon. But then Jesus came, and he was feasting and um, mixing with the tax collectors and sinners. And they said, oh, that's not good enough either. Uh, He's a wine-bibber. He is a glutton. Do you see, whatever evidence was given to them, whatever they saw, they rejected it. Because their problem wasn't with evidence. Their problem was with the fact that they hated Christ. They didn't want to believe. Uh, famous um, philosopher in history, uh, Blaise Pascal, once said, worse the effect of him, paraphrase slightly, but he says, there's enough shade in scripture that if you don't want to see, you won't. But there's enough light in scripture that if you want to see, you will. In other words, if you are honest with God's words, If you're honest with Christ, you will find more than sufficient evidence to trust in him. And that will give you all the confidence, all the certainty you need to live the Christian life with boldness, knowing this is true. Because wisdom is justified by all her children. So in closing, what can you do? Uh, What can you do if you are doubting this morning? It's possible there might be people here in the building or watching online and you are unsure of the truth of the Bible. Perhaps you, like John, are saying, is Christ the one or should we look for someone else? Well, I believe Christ would give three instructions to you. First thing he would say is read God's word. If you want to see light, Put yourself in front of it. <laughs> read God's word. But don't just read it. Uh, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed by the superstition that there is, even in Christians, who talk about reading the Bible, and regardless of how much they understand it, they sort of talk as though just re- merely reading the words is beneficial. Uh, the, the Bible is beneficial to us to the extent which we understand it. We may not understand all of it, but what we do understand will do us good. So don't just seek to read it. Don't just sort of skim your eyes across the page hoping it will do you good. Seek to understand what it says. Grasp what you do understand and lean on it. So read it. Seek to understand it. But perhaps most importantly of all, seek to live it. 
When you hear a command of Christ, do not ignore it. Seek to shape your life around it. Build your life on this book and you'll discover it is a trustworthy foundation to build on. And millions, I think that's right, millions of people throughout history would be able to testify to that. Uh, Gypsy Smith was a preacher, I think in the last century, and uh, he once told of a man who said to him that he received no inspiration from the Bible, although he had gone through it several times. And Gypsy Smith responded and said, let it go through you once, then you will tell a different story. There is a difference between going through the Bible and letting the Bible go through you. And that ultimately is where assurance and certainty comes from. Archaeology is useful. History helps. Science can uh, tell us wonderful things. But if you want to come to a firm conviction, God's word is true, that Christ is true, let his words go through you. Shape your life around it, and you will know whether the word is from God or not. And with those thoughts in mind, let's close uh, by singing a final song. And it's a song I don't think we've sung before. Uh, Ian and Bethany will be playing for us. Uh, But it's a hymn which really points us to that truth, that our hope is in Christ and in him alone. That is our confidence. That is our hope. Uh, So we'll sing, what is our hope? It's in the, um, the service sheet. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? And so, uh, because we haven't sung this before, I think it'd be good if we, sing, if we can listen to the first verse and chorus, and then we'll stand and sing, what is our hope in life and death?